encountering the texture of the text of God's Word, text and context. That is uh, the sound system. (laughs) This morning we're going to be in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. A very familiar story, but I hope maybe we'll see some things we haven't seen before. Maybe God will speak to us anew. I'm going to read just a few verses to get started. John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. Well, 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 what have we here? (laughs) There's a lot going on here, actually. Uh, Biblically speaking, there's a lot of cultural assumptions going on here. Um, I don't know if you can just feel the cultural assumptions flying off the page at you. Can you feel it? Uh, You might have a little bit of culture shock as you read it. Um, It's important for us to remember God's word is for us, but originally it is not to us. John originally wrote this to people who were much closer to him, people who uh, would understand his cultural assumptions, people who would know what he was saying. All that to say, wells have a certain connotation in the ancient world. Uh, wells are where you went to meet romantic partners in the ancient world, a love interest, a potential spouse or a date. It was the dating app of the ancient world because they didn't have things like Tinder, Christian Mingle, Hinge, or eHarmony. So instead, if you're looking for a date or a potential future spouse, you go to the well. And if you don't believe me, just remember Abraham. Abraham sent his servant to find a spouse for his son, Isaac, the beloved son. And where did this servant go once he got to the town of Nahor? He went to the well. And uh, he kind of, it's a great little story. He makes this like wager with God. He's like, look, there's a lot of people here. Whichever one I ask for a drink and they give me a drink and then some, we'll know that that's the person, that's, that's our gal. And so he sits down, he asks for a drink and then a certain Rebecca gives him not only a drink, but also waters his camels and uh, makes quite the impression on the servant. And the rest, they say, is history. And then also Jacob. Oh, Jacob, that old God wrestling, blessing, stealing mama boy and namesake of God's people. He also met his wife at a well. Well, technically he met his favorite wife at a well, but that's a whole different story. Uh, Jacob creeps along to the well And he creeps along to the well, specifically in the middle of the day at noon. And there he meets his future favorite wife. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. And Moses, that great leader of God's people, the main character from Exodus on in the Pentateuch, he also met his wife at a well. He was fleeing Egypt into Midian because he had done the whole thing where he overheard some people fighting and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. They find it. And then the next day he sees Israelites fighting. He says, break it up, you two. And they say, what, you're going to kill me too? That whole story. 
And then he runs out to the wilderness because he's scared and he's having a fight with his people and he runs out into the wilderness, comes to a well in Midian, and there he meets the lovely daughter of the priest of Midian, Zipporah. And, well, the rest, they say, is history. Did you hear it? Did you hear all the echoes of those other well stories with the one that we just read? Did you hear it? Um, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, kind of. He's kind of trying to get out of eyesight of the Pharisees at the moment because they hear about him baptizing people, and we're Church of Christ. We know whenever you baptize people, they get mad. And um, so he's, he's running on his way to get out into the desert and uh, sounds a lot like Moses trying to run away from his people who are also having some spouts with him. And then Jesus asks for a drink of water, a lot like Abraham's servant did when he was searching for a wife for the beloved Isaac. And also, what time of day was Jacob at the well again? And what was the name of the well that Jesus sat down by again? Whose well? Jacob's well. Well, well, well. What have we here? Let's keep reading. Maybe we'll see. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, and also a man, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Uh, Question, does your Bible place all of verse 9 in quotations or does it have the second half of verse 9 in parentheses? Yeah, does anybody at all have it all in quotations? Okay, then nobody is using the King James this morning. Cool. I'm good with that, actually. This is one of the few times I agree with the King James. Um, Actually, so it's interesting. In Greek, there's this weird, curious, and really annoying phenomenon, and it shows up several places in our New Testament, where they have a way of indicating the beginning of a quotation, but they don't have a way of indicating the end of a quotation. And so it's obvious whenever a quotation begins, but it's not always obvious when it ends. And so from context, you got to pick it up. Now, if it's in parentheses, as my Bible, the NRSV has it, and most of yours, that means that the translators are telling us they think that this is said by John. That John is adding this as a parenthetical comment, right? That he's telling us the story, and then he kind of steps out for a second and says, by the way, they don't share things in common, right? Now, if it were all in quotation marks, that would mean that who is saying it? No, the woman. The woman speaking in verse 9. Good guess. Jesus is almost always the answer. But um, in verse 9, it's the woman talking. Um, so that means she would say that. So I like that too, don't you? So, so hear it all in quotations. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews don't share things in common with Samaritans. Don't you understand how things work around here? I love whenever characters in Scripture are always trying to explain to Jesus how things work. That always, oh, as, as, a self, uh, as a self-proclaimed know-it-all, I just, I really resonate with that. Um, I love this. Um, it may not make that big of a difference. You may be hearing this and rolling your eyes, and that's fine. But I think it's interesting that maybe she said that too. And in fact, I think she did. Because Jews and Samaritans are, you know, super different. So historically and biblically, it's important to remember who the Samaritans are. Do you remember who the Samaritans are? 
They're really technically the remnants of the northern tribe of Israel. You remember after Solomon, his kids have all the battles and disputes, and then the kingdom of Israel breaks into the southern kingdom of Israel and Judah, and then there's the northern kingdom of Israel, right? And the northern kingdom gets carried off into exile by Assyria, whereas the southern kingdom, the faithful remnant, holds it out for a little bit longer, and then they get carried off into exile by Babylon. So these are the, the leftover folk of this, the northern kingdom, the Samaritans. They're half-breed Jews, if you will. They're not full-breed Jews. They're half-breed Jews. And also in the ancient world, you don't really get anything like what we know of as racism based on skin color. But you do get a little bit of stuff of racism based on things like religion. And so this is, this is very much a racist thing. Jews were kind of racist towards Samaritans at the time. And not kind of super so, for example, it said Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, it is the easiest way on the map to get there because he was down in Judah and he's going up to Galilee and Samaria lies in the middle. And so logically, you just go straight through it. But let me tell you, most Jews in that day did not go through it straight through Samaria because they don't want to have to interact with any Samaritans. So there's all these roads that we find that go around Samaria. So, no, he didn't have to go through Samaria. It's interesting the text says that. And I kind of, I taught on this text a little bit on Wednesday night, just kind of prepping and not really able to do with it all the stuff that I want to do now. But uh, Coach Max, Max Bricka um, from Celebration, he made the comment whenever I said, well, you didn't have to go through it. He made the comment, Jesus had an appointment he had to keep. And I said, yes, he did. <laughs> but you see what I mean? He didn't really, ha- like logistically, no, he didn't. He could have done it another way. But for some reason, he had to. Interesting. Yeah, the, the Jews and Samaritans are, are very different. They're, they're very distinct um, ways of thinking about this. Um, and also, I'm going to let you in on this a little bit more here in a moment, but I kind of think the Samaritan woman is trying to put the moves on Jesus. I think she's being flirty. Read the text and tell me you don't kind of hear it, right? She doesn't know. She doesn't know who she's talking to yet. She will. And there comes a point in the text where it's clearly like, oh, okay. But I think she might just be kind of trying to flirt with Jesus a little bit. And given the Samaritan Jewish tensions, this is kind of like a a black man flirting with a white girl in Jim Crow South. It's uh, dangerous. Or like Zac Efron and Zendaya in The Greatest Showman, but that's a whole separate issue. It's forbidden love, perhaps. And Jesus says, well, if you really knew who was talking to you, you would ask for a drink from me instead. And if she had asked him for a drink, he would have given her living water. And that's a really interesting phrase because in Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah, that great prophet with a fire in his bones, Jeremiah is rebuking the people of God for spiritual adultery. You remember that in the Old Testament, over and over and over and over and over again, God's people are equated with the wife and Yahweh is equated with the husband. And because they go worship other gods, they are cheating on their husband, Yahweh. You remember this. Uh, If you've ever read the book of Hosea, if you haven't, I would encourage you. It's terrifying. Terrifying. The prophet Hosea is told by God, go marry a prostitute. And then whenever she cheats on you and you say, this is terrible, God is going to say, yeah, that's what it's like with my people. That's in your Bible. Anyway, I'll leave that for you. But just to spell out this biblical metaphor all the way, Yahweh equals husband, Israel equals wife, Israel slash wife cheats on Yahweh slash husband, by worshiping other deities. So the Baals and the Asherahs and what have you. So anyway, there's a passage in Jeremiah chapter 2 
And the context is talking about spiritual adultery. And Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. They forsook me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that hold no water. They've forsaken me, Yahweh, the living water. Hmm. Well, well, well. Let's keep reading. This is verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket. (laughs) And the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Huh? The huh is extra. Just trust me. (laughs) Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and his sons and his flocks who drank from it? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to her, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus was the first plumber. He's offering to install a new water system for the lady. Uh, The word here for sir, I just have to dwell on that. Because sir, it's translated well, but it's in Greek, it's the same word for Lord. Which is funny. Because she's calling him Lord, which is a sign of respect, right? So Hannah and I went to a Renaissance festival last week on Sunday. And the bathrooms are marked Lord and Lady. And of course, it's not referring to Yahweh and then females and the men just have to hold it. Right? The word Lord used to be like lords and ladies, like a term of respect, right? Like sir and madam, lord and lady. And so by saying sir, it's, it's a legitimate translation. I'm just saying it's funny in Greek because she's calling him Lord, but she doesn't realize that he's all capital letters, L-O-R-D. She thinks he's lowercase L-O-R-D, and she calls him Lord, but it's funny because she's about to find out that he's all capital letter. It's, oh, I love that. Sir. Three different times. Sir. My Lord. And Jesus elaborates on the kind of water that he can offer her, that he, the Lord, can give her as the living water, as our prophet Jeremiah would call him. And notice Jesus says they not only won't be thirsty, they'll have a spring of water gushing up in them. The water Jesus gives can quench your own thirst and the thirst of others around you. It's like, let's make this well mobile, the original uh, water container. We'll take it with us. It's a whole reservoir that can pour out to others. Reminds me of this thing that this psalmist says, my cup is overflowing. Just gushes out to everybody else. Uh, One time uh, when I was in high school, I got to help clean up some of the tornadoes in Oklahoma. Um, I would specify, but it's Oklahoma. There's always tornadoes. And we were cleaning up one of the tornadoes that had just, I mean, devastated this community. And as we were driving up to the cleanup site that day, we saw three gigantic pallets of water bottles in those big packages out in front of CVS. And, you know, different places were doing this, but this one was like right by the entrance of the community. Big signs, free, take what you need. So we loaded up several cases of water. We drank lots of water. It was hot. And we also shared those water bottles and gave them to working families around us who were also helping clean up. We gave them to families who were grieving as they cleaned up what was left of their houses. We shared those plastic water bottles, and it's weird. We just never seem to run out of them either. This is verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, uh, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, 
And the one that you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. A lot there. Among other things, I think we are supposed to giggle when we hear that. Because I think the woman, again, is attempting to put the moves on Jesus up until this point. And I think this is the point where she goes, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. I think she thinks Jesus is trying to pull that old move where you uh, say something about a boyfriend or a husband to see if they have a boyfriend or a husband. And then depending on how they respond, then you proceed. You know what I'm talking about? The age old, oh, well, I bet your boyfriend's wondering where you are. You should probably get going. Oh, I don't have a boyfriend. Oh, really? Well, what are you doing on Friday? I think she's thinking he's doing that. Oh, I have no husband. And at that point, I think she's going, ah. and then Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You don't. She's like, oh, darn. <laughs> he figured it out. Jesus reveals that he knows way more than she thought he knew. And I do want to clarify something. And to me, this is really important because I have heard this story preached a lot. And there's certain assumptions that go in here that I think are just not founded. And here it is. This woman is not a, a, a um, I'm going to say what I really think. This woman is not a slut. And we have often read it as if she is. The word sin never shows up here. I think we equate her with the woman caught in adultery who was actually caught in adultery. And Jesus actually says, go and sin no more. But he never says that to her. And in fact, in historical context, do women get divorces for themselves in this world? No, they get divorced. And also in this world, they don't really get jobs. Could women have jobs in the ancient world? Sometimes, but that's the exception, not the rule. The vast majority of the time they needed someone to provide for them. So now hear that in context. Yeah, you're, you're right. You've had five husbands. Whether they died or you were tossed around like you didn't matter. And in fact, the man you're with now isn't even your husband. Translation, he could kick you to the curb today without so much as a how do you do and that'd be the end of it. At least if she was married, he would have to go through legal proceedings. And those proceedings were super easy, way easier then than they are now. And yet, at least he would have to go through that if they were married. But she doesn't even have that level of protection. It's interesting. This woman has been tossed around like she doesn't matter. And I think, she's, I think I'm hearing in Jesus' words, and I admit I'm interpreting, but I think my interpretation is closer to the, the history and the text. And, and I think he's saying... Um, woman, I'll, I can provide for you in ways that those men never, ever could. I can provide for your soul in ways that they never could. And remember, where are they having this conversation at again? Well, well, well. She's probably done what she had to do to survive, which means I don't think she's some sexually voracious villain. I think she's an exploited victim. And so you hear what Jesus is saying here. He's not shaming her. He's loving her. And he's not flirting with her, but he is trying to get her to see that he will be a husband who can provide for her in the ways that none of those other guys ever could. And don't you also hear that they discuss everything that follows. They're not really changing the subject. They're not really changing. At least Jesus isn't changing the subject because for him, husband Yahweh has always loved his wayward and troubled people, Israel. Yahweh has always loved his bride. Always. They're now talking about a spiritual romance. God, the husband, is still trying to woo his people Israel. All of his people, including the Samaritans. Let me tell you, in this world, the Samaritans are like the... They are the half-breed Jews. They're the, peop, they're the liberals. <laughs> 
And yet God still wants to woo all of his people back. He's seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. This is verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Understatement of the year. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Oh yeah, the mountain that they're standing on is the place where the Samaritan temple used to be. Samaritans had their own temple in opposition to the temple in Jerusalem where Jews worshiped. So all this talk about worship and marriage and the overlay, are you hearing it? Um, You worship what you do not, oh, sorry. Uh, Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, okay, let me pause there. Jesus is not being disrespectful. (laughs) In the ancient world, this is like the equivalent of ma'am. Okay, earlier in John, he calls his mom woman. He's not saying woman. (laughs) It's not what he's, he's saying ma'am, which by the way, means he's respecting this woman. When was the last time she got addressed like that? Just wondering. Verse 21, Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him worship him in spirit and and in truth. Uh, Oh, I stopped reading too soon. Uh, Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am the one who is speaking to you. What does your Bible say there? Does it say, I am he? Barf. Oh, I despise that. Ah, It's I am. Cross out the he. It's I am, which is, of course, significant biblically because, because that's Yahweh's name. Moses on the mountain says, well, who exactly am I supposed to say sent me here? And he says, well, tell them I am sent you. I am. Oh, bride, your husband is here. And I want to point out something else, too. Jesus is Yahweh in flesh. If you read John, you see that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's Yahweh in the flesh. Big deal. If you read at the very end of chapter 3, very end of chapter 3 of John, which is right before this, which is chapter 4, there's this really interesting section about Jesus and John the Baptist. And John the Baptist basically says, I'm the best man at the wedding. Which if John is the best man, that makes Jesus the groom. And so... Think about this in your mind. At the end of chapter three, you've got a husband with no bride. And then now here in chapter four, you have a bride with no husband. Nicholas Sparks has nothing on this. They should get together. (laughs) And they will. She converts. You remember also at the very beginning of this chapter, what are the Pharisees upset about? They're upset because Jesus and his disciples are... Hmm. because Jesus is proposing and people are saying yes and they're accepting the invitation. Jesus said to her, I am he. In other words, Yahweh, the husband of Israel and of Samaria is standing right there on the mountain and she didn't have to flirt with Jesus because he was already hers and she was already his before time began. Yahweh is where her salvation begins before she even was born and knew how to sin. Yahweh will provide her 
for her and the person of Jesus, like all five of those men, husbands and the current man she's living with never could have. And in walked the disciples at exactly the right moment. (laughs) Oblivious to what has just taken place and appalled that Jesus is talking alone with a woman. Another cultural taboo that you don't do in this world. Uh, Verse 27. When the disciples came, or just then his disciples came, and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. Thankfully, they kept their mouths shut. Nobody said, what do you want? That would be addressed to the woman. Or, why are you speaking with her? That would be addressed to Jesus. Smart move. They kept it to themselves. And then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. And she said to the people, come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. And I love this. He couldn't be the Messiah, could he? I don't think she's actually asking that question. I think she's um, rhetorically doing what we do when we're very excited. It couldn't be him, could it? Well, yes. It's like whenever you wake up on Christmas. Is it Christmas already? Yes, we know it's Christmas already. You're expressing how excited you are. You're expressing the joy that's in your heart. He couldn't be the Messiah, could he? And they left the city and they were on their way to him. Well, well, well. (laughs) What a turn of events. She left her water jar. Now, I'm no expert, but wouldn't you come to a well with a water jar in the first place to get water? And wouldn't it be kind of weird if you left the very thing you went there for in the first place? I guess she got some of that water that Jesus was offering, huh? It's interesting. Come and see, she says. Literally, come and behold. Um, we just got done preaching on the transfiguration last week. Come and behold. Come stand in the light and let it transform you. To mix my metaphors a little bit. The Bible likes to mix metaphors. And what's more, notice what she's telling them to come and behold. She wants them to come see a man who has told her everything she's ever done. And that phrase recurs again at the end of this chapter where the Samaritans come and a lot of the Samaritans in the city are converted because of her testimony, specifically her testimony that this man had told her everything she'd ever done. Some people take that to mean, well, say she's just, she's just promiscuous and text doesn't say that. It's interesting, you know, she did just say, I know that Messiah is coming who's called Christ and when he comes, he'll proclaim all things to us. Huh, I don't think she thought that's what was gonna happen. Whenever she said that, come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. I don't think that's the all thing she thought the Messiah was going to proclaim to her. It's interesting. I guess she didn't really realize what she meant by it either. Encounters with Jesus tend to do that to us. (laughs) I want to invite you on this third Sunday of Lent to come and meet the true lover of your soul at the well. Yahweh is always trying to woo his people back to himself. God loves his people and he loves them deeply and he is sitting at the well saying, come home, come to me. If Lent is a time of repentance, then it is time to leave our water jars behind, leave behind old ways of being and embrace new ways of being, better ways of being, holier ways of being, to be transformed, transfigured maybe, by the renewing of our minds, O church, embrace the love of your husband, Christ. He loves you and he is wooing you. God is looking at you right now and he is loving you.
author Ted Decker. He's a Christian author. And he wrote this series called The Circle Series, which is basically his attempt at doing The Chronicles of Narnia. And it was pretty good. I liked it. But the thing I like most in this book is how he describes the religion of the people in this world that he's created. The people in this book, they worship God. They call God Elyon, which is actually a Hebrew name. So it's actually really clever that Decker did that. But they worship Elyon and they speak of and they call their religion the Great Romance. I like that. Elyon is wooing his people, they will say. And so when someone is at a moment of decision where they can decide to do this or to do that, the people will say to one another, Elyon is wooing his people. He's trying to woo you. What a beautiful perspective. You know, you've seen the traditional little angel and devil on the shoulders. (laughs) Well, there's certainly some truth to the spiritual warfare aspect. There is evil in the world and there are dark things that try to pull us away from the light. But this is even more important. Yahweh is trying to woo his people. In all those moments of temptation, Yahweh is trying to woo his people back to himself, back into the great romance. So stop playing hard to get. You will find no spouse as faithful as Christ Jesus. Give in to the great romance. Many of you are probably like me. In fact, I'm looking around. I'm fairly certain all of you are like me. You've been in church for a while. (laughs) at least more than just this Sunday. You've already accepted Christ. You've already been baptized. You're already married to Christ. You are the bride of Christ. And so you're like, yeah, great. I'm already a part of it. I'm already a part of it. And we don't want to go back to some of those times, like I remember preaching churches of like four people and they wanted me to extend the invitation for four people that are already baptized. And I had to give the rundown on baptism again. But you know, Paul does talk about baptism over and over and over again, not to people who aren't baptized, but to people who are baptized. In other words, it's a renewal of your vows. It's a constant reminder that this is what we're in. And anybody who's been married for longer than the honeymoon basically knows that that's that's very much part of it. It's very much part of it to remind ourselves this is the commitment we've made and it's hard and sometimes it's fun, but the moments that count are the moments when it's not fun. And here we are and our Lord has made his commitment to us And this is a time when we look at him and renew our commitment. Um, I'm reminded of something someone told me once about marriage that I think applies here too. Uh, I heard somebody, I don't remember who, somebody somewhere said, it is not simply enough to act lovingly, although that's important, but you also have to tell them. So you can go to either opposite extreme, right? You can say it and not do it, or you can do it and not say it. But this person said, there's also something about saying it. And this person specifically said, it's not enough to write it on a card. It's not enough to say, well, she knows. He said, you got to tell her. And you got to tell her frequently. And that stuck with me. I think that's deeply true. And if it's true of earthly marriage, how much more true is it of God? Have you told your spouse you love him? When was the last time you looked at God and said, I love you? It's important. And so you don't have to get rebaptized. You don't have to do anything too dramatic. But maybe you could do something really intimate and really loving with your spouse, Christ. <clears throat> I would encourage you in your own way and in the way that you feel led by him, tell your spouse, Jesus Christ, 
that you love him. Come and behold your husband, O church. Love him and be loved by him and return to him in whatever way he beckons you today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.